Well, good morning. How's everybody doing today? Good. All right. Hey, if you haven't grabbed, if you haven't grabbed an outline off the back table, let me encourage you to do so. It will help you immensely in this morning's sermon. And uh, you can open your Bibles up to 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6. And we'll be looking at verses 6 through 10 together this morning. So, Happy New Year to you. We're glad that you're here. And this morning, we have the privilege and the pleasure of sitting under God's Word and talking about this morning how, as Christians, we all have great gain. No matter what kind of situation you're in, this new year, in Christ, you have great gain. And that's what this text is really all about, reminding us that we find our great gain in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and not in money. Can somebody say amen already? We haven't even got in the sermon yet. All right, amen. Here we go. You ready? Great gain. First Timothy chapter 6. We'll be in verses 6 through 10 together this morning. Let's read it together. Here we read, but godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. For we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. If we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. But for those who want to get rich, fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge man into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Let's pray together. Father, we already stand convicted before your word, but we also stand with great celebration in our hearts that you are stronger and that you break the bondage and curse of sin over our lives so that we might truly experience great gain. Today, God, I pray that you would encourage every heart. Lord, I pray that you would move in every person. I pray that you would be exalted in our time together as we continue to worship through your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, this past summer, Lisa and I had the privilege of taking our kids to Disney World, which truly is the happiest place on earth, all right? Not the happiest place in heaven, but on earth it's Disney World, or so they say, right? And while we were in Disney World, we've kind of made a little family tradition of going to eat dinner one night at your favorite restaurant, CC's Pizza. Come on, CC's. Where else are you going to take a bunch of little kids to eat pizza in an affordable way. So we go to CC's Pizza. There's this one place that we love to go to, and at this place resides what I like to call the balloon lady. Okay, there's a balloon lady, I'm convinced, that lives there, and she walks around and makes balloon figures for the kids who are eating pizza. So we're sitting there eating pizza, and she's over there, and she's got, you know, dressed kind of like a clown, kind of like Amanda Chavez's mom. Uh, where is the, where are the Chavez's? Are they here in the service? There they are, right there. But just like Miss Chavez making the balloon figures, if you saw her at the at the uh, at the October uh, family fun festival that we had, you know what I'm talking about, right? You're making the balloon characters for the animals, and my little three-year-old Micaiah is uh, all excited about this, and so she starts working her way down to our table, and he's like, "Ooh me, ooh me, me me, ooh me," and so she's like, "Well, what do you want me to make make you?" And he's like, "I want to make I want I want a dog," and so she makes him this dog, and it's not just any dog. I mean, this dog had. This dog had a nose, and this dog had ears, and this dog had a tail, and this dog even had a beard, kind of like the lady in the tramp, that movie, that the tramp dog. So this dog is like the perfect dog, or so we thought, until she made Hudson a penguin. And then at that moment, Micaiah is no longer interested in his dog. He now wants this penguin, until she then made Nate a Spider-Man figure. And then Micaiah doesn't want the penguin. He wants the Spider-Man. I mean, come on, it's red and blue Spider-Man. And what we're seeing here is that, you know what, kids, they just can't be content. You know how kids are, right? They just can't be content. I mean, have you ever been to Chuck E. Cheese? How many of you guys have taken your kids to Chuck E. Cheese? How many of you guys are glad you're out of that stage of life? And you're like, I will never <laughs> go back again. All right, well, last year we did it. We took our five-year-old, Nate, to Chuck E. Cheese. They go from game to game, to game, to game. you got to have that next game. you got to keep that rush 
going, right? Well, it's not just kids. Come on, we know it's not kids that struggle with contentment. Let's not kid ourselves. It's us. We struggle with contentment. I struggle with contentment. I got to buy a new suit. And with that new suit, you know you got to get a nice shirt. And with that shirt, you got to have the right tie. And with the tie and the shirt and the suit, you need a nice belt. And your belt's got to match your shoes. And you could just go on and on. You know what I'm talking about. Even this week, Lisa called me after dropping the kids off at Mother's Day Out. And last year, the kids loved going. And so Lisa would call me and say, wow, the kids, they just go and play. And I kind of wish they would miss me because, you know, they seem like they don't care about me. When we get there, they just go play. Well, this week she calls me and says, I can't get the kids to stay there. They keep hanging on to me, you know. And they, they you know, it's like we can never find contentment as a parent. If our kids are doing, you know, we want them to miss us. And then we, we want to be able to leave them somewhere, right? The idea is that we all struggle with contentment. We're all like that. Can you relate to that this morning? If it's not one thing, it's another. If it's not you, it's something you want someone else to do. We all struggle with contentment. Maybe for you, it's something as simple as the weather living here in Houston. It's too hot. It's too humid. Oh, now it's too cold. I mean, you can't find perfect weather unless you move to somewhere like Southern California. Nice place with nice weather. Well, the point in all of this struggle is that If you're struggling to be content, I've got news for you this morning, you always will. You will always struggle with contentment, that is, unless you come to Christ. If you come to the Lord Jesus Christ and experience the great gain that He has for you, not only in heaven, but in this world, that you become to a point where you begin to realize that great gain is not about getting more things, but it's about having a proper perspective of what we have in Christ. Jeremiah Burroughs, well-known Puritan and author of this book, which we have in our resource center, The Rare Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment, talks, writes this whole book talking about how we can learn to find contentment. Here's how he defines Christian contentment in the book. He says this, it is a sweet inward heart thing. It is a work of the Spirit indoors. It is a box of precious ointment, very comforting and useful for troubled hearts in times of troubled conditions. That's what contentment is, and that's what I need. I don't know about you this year, but in 2013, I want to learn to be content in Jesus. I want to learn to be content, not in anything else, not in anyone else, but in the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to be satisfied in Him. Earlier in the last century, the well-known band Rolling Stones released a single in 1965 entitled Satisfaction. It later became what some called the song of the century. The chorus, I can't get no satisfaction. I can't get no satisfaction because I try and I try and I try. I can't get no. Hey, stop singing the song. You guys know you're singing that right now in your mind. I can't get no satisfaction. Why is it that that song is so popular? Why would it be called the song of the century? Well, do you know why Mick Jagger and the Rolling Stones and the rest of the world can't get no satisfaction? It's because they don't have Jesus. It's because without Jesus Christ being the center of your life, without understanding that the gospel not only saves you, but satisfies you day after day after day, then you will sing that song, I can't get no satisfaction. But in Christ, we can have satisfaction. Now, you're here this morning, you say, okay, Adam, I'm a Christian, I am a believer, I I believe the gospel, but I'll be honest with you, I still struggle with contentment. Why is it that I struggle? And the answer is because Christian contentment does not come naturally. It comes supernaturally. Contentment is not the byproduct of living a life as a member of a Bible church. It's the byproduct of looking to Jesus Christ as you live your life every day as a Christian. Christian contentment is not free. It costs the price of giving up everything else but Jesus. Are you willing to pay the price for Christian contentment? You've got to give it all up. Contentment is not something that you work for. It's someone that you rest in. Contentment is not something that you earn. It's something that you learn. 
by looking to Jesus Christ. This is what Paul says to the church of Philippi. Philippians 4.11 says, Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. Now, I'm encouraged by that this morning because if Paul can learn to be content, that means so can I. So can you this morning. You can learn to be content as a Christian in the Lord Jesus Christ. You can learn to be content by coming to Him. How I want to learn that this year. I want to come to Him in my abundance and in my suffering. When I have a lot and when I have a little. When things are going my way and things aren't going my way, I want to learn to be content always in the Lord Jesus Christ. And this morning, I want to teach you four truths about being content so that you may experience great gain. Truth number one, accept that godliness with contentment is great gain. Look at verse 6. But godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. Now, as we dive in this first verse, if you will, let me give you just a little bit of background on 1 Timothy. We know it's written by the Apostle Paul. He's writing to young Timothy to give him direction about how to be a faithful pastor. And the most important thing about being a God-honoring pastor is honoring God's Word. And so as he's teaching Timothy how to honor God's Word and to honor God's truth, in this epistle, Paul Paul taught Timothy that sound doctrine must be upheld that false teachers must be confronted, and that mature leadership in the church must be developed. In fact, the theme verse for 1 Timothy, many would say, is, the, is the verse 11 and 12 immediately following our text this morning. Look at it, verse Timothy 6, 11 and 12. But flee from these things, you man of God, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith, and take hold of the eternal life which you were called, and you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. That's what Paul is trying to teach Timothy. This is what it's about, Timothy. Fight the fight of faith. Teach the truth. Confront false teaching. And part of what they're confronting here in chapter 6 are the false teachers who are teaching that godliness can be a means of gain uh, in, in, in grasping physical things. In other words, there, there were these teachers in verses 3 through 5, right before our text, that he's confronting, saying, these false teachers are saying that godliness is a means of gain for them. And what he's saying is, these guys aren't actually godly, because they're false teachers, but they're using religion to exploit others to gain money. And in confronting that, that's where we pick up in verse 6, the contrast, he says, but godliness is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. And so verse 6, it's almost as if he's saying there's two things you need to do. You need to be godly and you need to be content. The word godliness means piety or reverence or a likeness to God. It could be translated as religion, but only in the true sense of the word, true religion. It describes, could be, uh, it describes the idea of true holiness, spirituality, in virtue. In other words, if you want to be content this morning, it doesn't start with looking at your pocketbook, seeing how much money you have in your bank, see how close you are to your earthly dream. It starts this morning in pursuing godliness. It's as simple as that. You want to be content? It starts with, are you pursuing righteousness? Are you pursuing a holy life? Are you pursuing God, who is the greatest reward that you could ever gain? The greatest gain imaginable is a relationship with Him. It starts with being godly. This is consistent throughout the New Testament. Matthew 5, 48, Jesus says on the Sermon on the Mount, Therefore you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Peter wrote in 1 Peter 1, 16, Because it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. The question is, well, why does God command us to pursue godliness, to pursue holiness? Well, obviously it's for His own glory. That's why we exist. That's why we live. We desire to honor Him, submit to Him, follow Him, pursue holiness so that He would be glorified. But it's also so that you would be satisfied. We we desire to live holy lives not only for the glory of God, but for the good of your soul. It's the idea that happiness, true happiness, comes from your pursuit of holiness. The more holy you are, the more happy you will be. 
And I'm not talking about a holiness of your own. We know it comes from the righteousness of Christ through the gospel, that he who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And as a Christian, as you live for him, it's godliness accompanied with contentment that is the means of great gain for you. You see, great gain is not about things. It's about a perspective. It's about being reminded of what Paul says to the church of Ephesus in Ephesians 1.3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. If you're a believer and God has truly blessed you with every spiritual blessing, what do you lack? What else do you need? What else would you look for to find contentment if it's not found in every spiritual blessing in Christ? So the idea here in verse 6 again is Paul saying, hey, you want to be content? It starts off with being godly, and then you need to follow that. And in a sense, he's commanding us to, to be content. It's not good, in other words, to seek to be godly without contentment. Neither is it good to seek to be content without being godly. These two things have to be working in concert together. If you're seeking to be godly without contentment, then you're emphasizing religion over a relationship. On the other hand, if you're seeking to be content without being godly, then you're emphasizing the physical over the spiritual. One leads to legalism, the other leads to hedonism. The idea is you can't have one without the other. God desires for you to be content in Him, which means if you're looking for contentment in things or in circumstances, you'll never find it, and you'll never have the great gain God desires to give to you in 2013. There's nothing more God would want to give to you than Himself in 2013 in such a way that every day of this year that you would be overwhelmed by His glory and His grace in your life and say, today was a day of great gain. Your stock might have gone down. But you would say, today was a day of great gain. One of your kids might have ran away from home. But you could say, today was a day of great gain. You could have lost a loved one. But you could still say, today was a day of great gain. Because it's godliness with contentment that leads us to great gain. If you look for it anywhere else, you will never find it. The idea about being content, godliness accompanied by contentment, is where heaven and earth meet. Godliness with contentment is where faith and feelings come together. Godliness with contentment is where holiness and happiness become a reality. The word contentment in the original language means literally self-sufficiency. The word is used by Cynic and Stoic philosophers to describe the person who is unflappable, unmoved by outside circumstances, and who properly reacts to his environment. To be content in these terms means to be satisfied and sufficient, to seek nothing more than, one, than what one has. Okay, that's from a secular standpoint, just strictly the idea of contentment, self-satisfaction. Well, we know as Christians, that's not what contentment is, because it's not being satisfied with what you have, it's being satisfied in God and in Him giving you what you have. So you can't leave God out of the equation. Philippians 4.19, and God will supply all your needs according to His riches in glory in Christ Jesus. I mean, here's the deal. For the Christian, being content is more than a mere human endeavor to be stoic and noble. Being content is based on the sufficiency of God provided through His Son, Jesus Christ, by His Spirit giving you a daily reflection on the mercy you have received in Him so that you can truly be content in any and in every circumstance. Using godliness for gain, these false teachers were leading Christians away from the truth, trying to say that gain came through riches, and it doesn't. It comes through spiritual riches, not earthly ones. People are truly rich when they are content with God and with what God has given them. The richest person is the one who does not need anything else. When asked the secret of contentment, the Greek philosopher Epicurus replied, quote, "...add not to a man's possessions, but take away 
from his desires. That's what you need to be rich. It's not that you need more things. Add not to a man's possession. Start taking away some of the desires you have for things that you think somehow will help you reach total fulfillment. Oh, how we need to learn this truth today. How we need to learn today that being content is not about having things, even good things. I just got to get into a good school, you might be thinking, because I got to land a, a really good job, and so I need to get into a good school so I can get a good education and land a good job, and then, and then I'm not going to be content just with that good education and that good job. I, I need a spouse. I mean, I need somebody to share life with. I need a godly man or a godly woman, or I'll never be content. And if that's not enough, I need to not just land that entry level in my job. I need to climb the corporate ladder. I need to be making more money. I need to get up to that six-figure salary or above so I can really finally be content. And when I get there, that's not enough. I need to buy a plot of land. That's what I need because I'm going to build me a house because that's what content people do. They build a big house on a big plot of land somewhere. But then when you build the house, that's not enough. You've got to furnish the house. I mean, it's not enough just to have that house that you always wanted, that you thought once you had the house, you'd be content. Now you've got to furnish the house. Not only that, you're thinking, well, I'm not content with this big old empty house that's so furnished so well. I need some kids, right? I'm not going to be content till we have a kid or two or two and a half and I need a dog and a cat. I need the kids not only to be in the house, I need them to be behaving in the house. I need them to be quiet in the house. I need them to be well-dressed so when they go to school, they'll look better than all the other kids. I need, I need a house. I need kids. I need, I need a vehicle. It's not going to be right driving around in an old beat-up minivan. Why not get one of those nice brand-new SUVs? I'm talking about an eight-cylinder, eight-passenger DVDs galore, all right? screens everywhere. That's what I need in order to really be content with my family in my house with my furniture. You see where I'm going with this? And it's like, well, I need the kids to, uh, I need the kids to obey. The kids aren't obeying me. I'm not going to be content because, well, what if, they, what if they don't marry the right person? We'll never be content if the kids don't marry the right person because they, that person's going to be part of our family. You know, and it's, we just keep going on and on, and, in the, and then it repeats itself. That kid's got to get into a good school so they can get a good job. But what I'm saying is we all relate so we start thinking contentment is all about even the good things. If we want to just have a good life, and we want to make it through and, 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 and get to experience some of the things we deserve, show me that in this text. Because in this text, God's reminding us this morning, no, 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 no. It's godliness accompanied by contentment that's great gain. You know what the good news of that is? If you never buy that plot of land, if you never get married, if you never have kids, if you never get the dream car, if you never have the right job, you can still be fully content in Jesus. That's the glory of the gospel. The glory of the gospel is contentment comes from godliness with contentment. That is great gain. There is nothing better. There is nothing else that will ever satisfy you. That's the good news of the gospel because it's accessible to all of us. At any moment of any day, you could be experiencing great gain by having a biblical perspective of contentment. Well, the second truth that I want you to learn this morning, number two, is we need to acknowledge that what you have was given to you. That's what we need to do. We just need to acknowledge that what you have was given to you. Look at verse 7. For what, excuse me, for we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. Okay, maybe part of the way that you need to learn to be content is not only it's about godliness and it's about being content in your godliness, but just practically speaking, we just need to acknowledge, you know, everything I got is a gift. You brought nothing into this world. I got four kids. We got number five on the way. Two weeks, baby. We're having another baby girl, Lord willing. Two weeks. Pray for us. We need your prayers. Okay, two weeks. I've seen all four of my kids born live. And I can guarantee you, they didn't bring a single thing in this world. In fact, it was kind of gross, you know what I'm saying? But the idea is they came with nothing. You brought nothing in. Everything you have is a gift from God. 1 Corinthians 4, 7, what do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you didn't receive it? In America, we like to think that we pulled ourselves up 
by our own bootstraps. We worked hard, and I started my business, and I worked 80 hours a week, and I, I had to milk the cow and walk five ways to school each way uphill in the snow. We like to think of ourselves that we did something. I, I guess there's a place where the, you, you could be thankful and, and proud in a good way, but overall, if we're not careful, we slip over into like, we did it. We built it. We made it happen. Look, there is nothing that you have that you did not receive. You came into this world with nothing, and verse 7 reminds us that you can't take anything out of it either. Ought to remind us of Job, right? Job chapter 1, towards the end of the chapter, he said, naked I came into this world, and naked I shall depart. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away, but blessed be the name of the Lord. It is all about him. It's all about him giving, him taking as he wants, because our contentment is not in him giving whatever he chooses to give us. Our contentment is not taken away when he chooses to take whatever he takes away. Our contentment is in a perspective of blessed be the name of the Lord who gives me every moment of every day great gain. It's not in what he's given me even. I need to just be content. Whatever God chooses to give me, that's great. Whatever he chooses to take away, that's great because you can't take it out of this world. I've been to a lot of funerals. I have never seen a hearse pulling a U-Haul. I have never seen anybody buried with their house, with their boat, with their car, with anything else that they long for in this world. When you go to the grave, you go alone with nothing in your hand. In fact, Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 15 says, As he had come naked from his mother's womb, so he shall return as he came. He will take nothing from the fruit of his labor that he can carry in his hand. You spend your whole life working with your hands to make what you make so that you can enjoy it. And the Bible reminds us when you leave, you can take nothing with you in your hands. Before Alexander the Great died, he said, quote, When I am dead, carry me forth on my bier with my hands not wrapped in cloth but laid outside so that all may see that they are empty. One commentator acknowledges this about Alexander the Great's request. Yes, those hands which once wielded the proudest scepter in the world, which once um, which, which once wielded the proudest scepter in the world, which once held the most victorious sword, which once were filled with silver and gold, which once had power to save or to sign away life, were now empty. Doesn't matter how great you are, how much you've accomplished, what you've done in this life, when you die, you will die with your hands empty. So what are you doing? What am I doing? What are we all doing in this world, working and working and working for what? Jesus said it this way in the Sermon on the Mount, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where neither thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, what? Where is your heart today? Is your heart here on this earth? Is your heart in what you can get? Is your heart in thinking about what's the next thing I'm going to buy? And when I get this, and I get this, and I get this, and I get this, and then what? Where is your heart? Is it in heaven or is it on earth? Because storing up for yourselves treasures on earth is like trying to make your car run on water instead of gasoline. Storing up for yourselves treasures on earth is like trying to fill up on crackers when the main course is about to be served. Storing up for yourselves treasures on earth is like staring at a picture of the ocean when you could look outside and see the ocean in all of its glory. We need to wake up. It's time today for each one of us in our own hearts, in our own souls to acknowledge that we are tempted, that we need to realize that we brought nothing into this world and we can take nothing out. So why spend so much time working for things, wanting things? Gotta have more. Our life is but a vapor. It's a mist. It's here today. It is gone tomorrow. Many of you are familiar with 
John Piper's popular book, Don't Waste Your Life. In the first chapter, I think it is, that he gives that illustration of what a true tragedy is. A true tragedy, he says, is something he read in Reader's Digest about a couple who retires early, say age 55, move to Florida, spend the last 30 years of their life playing softball, riding around in their boat and collecting seashells. And he talks about how that's a great tragedy because this last 30 years of their life that could have been so instrumental to do things for the kingdom, they live on seeking their own pleasure. And what would it be like when you're ushered into heaven on the day that you die? Are you going to stay there and say, hey, God, look at my boat. God, here's my seashell collection. I collected every shell. Is God somehow going to be impressed? Is that how you want to spend the last days you have on this earth? Now, look, we're all feeling convicted. Okay? There's nothing wrong with going on a nice vacation. I've been to Hawaii a couple of times, Jamaica, the Bahamas. Uh, you guys have been on vacations. I wish I had a boat. I don't have one. You know, it's nothing wrong with living and loving life. The problem is, is if you're wanting it too much. That's the problem. The problem is, is that we're finding our, contempt, our contentment in those things and not in the gospel. That's the problem. That's what he's addressing. He's reminding us that what we have is given to us by God to enjoy by giving thanks to God and sharing it with others for the purpose of the gospel ministry on earth, for in that you will find contentment. But it's not in those things. You could have a lot or have a little. Jeremiah Burroughs says in his book, quote, every comfort that the saints have in this world is an earnest penny to them of those eternal mercies that God has provided for them. It's nothing. All the stuff we have here is nothing compared to what God has for us. Here's the third truth that will help you experience great gain. Number three, appreciate that the basic needs of life are enough. Verse eight, if we have food and covering, with these we shall be content. I mean, that's, you want to, it's about godliness, and it's about being content as a Christian. But if you want to get really practical, what do I really need practically to be content? The Bible says two things, food and clothing. Are you thankful for those things? Are you thankful for the fact that you can go shop at HEB or Walmart or Brookshire Brothers and just within a few moments collect enough food to feed your family for a month? And here we are complaining about the cost of living going up and how much a gallon of milk costs. But did you know that in other places in the world, they can't get that stuff? That, ha, have you checked some of the statistics on world poverty lately? The total percentage of the world population that lives on less than 2 bucks and 50 cents a day would equal 50%. 3 billion people live on less than 250 a day. Total percentage of people that live on less than $10 a day, 80%. Five billion people in this world live on less than $10 a day. You complain if you're not starting an entry-level job at $10 an hour. Number of children that die each day due to poverty, 22,000 each day die because they don't have their basic needs met of food, and shelter. One out of every 12 children dies before celebrating his or her fifth birthday. One out of 12. Total number of people in developing countries with inadequate access to water, 1.1 billion. Are you grateful for what you have? Are you thankful or do you complain when mom cooks another meatloaf. Are you grateful for what you have? You have food galore. Our pantries are stocked. Our refrigerators are full. Yet we're complaining sometimes, and we're not thankful, and we're not satisfied. In fact, in our culture, food and clothing is a way to find contentment. That's how we're really content. You got to go have a nice meal, and you got to dress up to the hilt and go out on the town in order to really find contentment. We need to dress good, and we need good food in order to be content. And he's saying, no, 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 you, you're not understanding. Those are needs. Like, just basic food and covering is all you need. That's the practical way of being content. 
it's godliness, but practically just be thankful for what you have. If you have food and shelter and clothing, you're good to go. Are, are you thankful for your, for your clothing? Have you been on mission trips to Honduras, Uganda? You know how it is. You spend the week there, and you think when you first get there, hey, these people have clothes. What's the big deal? They don't look that poor. They're wearing clothes. They got shirt, pants. In fact, those are a nice pair of pants. Then you realize the next day they're wearing the same thing. 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 And you're like, does this guy have any more clothes? And the answer sometimes is no. He doesn't. That's it. The shirt on his back is all he's got. And you begin to start dumping out your suitcase. Here, take mine. I've got a closet full of stuff at home I need to go through. I can't wait to get rid of stuff and send it to the Goodwill or send it to wherever because I've got clothes coming out of my closet. But I've got to have more. Got to have that new suit, that new tie. Got to have those new pair of shoes. Got to have a little more because I'm not content with what I have. I need more. We've got to watch out. All of us have to watch out. Look, there's nothing wrong. This is a brand new tie. Cost me 10 bucks, sorry. But that is, it, it's nothing wrong with getting new clothes. The point is, is that where you're finding your love and your contentment? Is that what you crave? The richest man in the world at one time owned oil wells, refineries, tankers, and pipelines, also hotels, and a life insurance company, and a finance company, and aircraft companies. But he surrounded his 700-acre estate with bodyguards, vicious dogs, steel bars, searchlights, bells, and sirens, in addition to being afraid of planes, ships, crackpots. He feared disease, old age, helplessness, and death. He was lonely and gloomy and admitted that money could not buy happiness. Who am I talking about? Howard Hughes. You want to live in those shoes? Miserable, miserable man who died a miserable death. It's awful. Money cannot buy you happiness. J.C. Ryle has this to say about money, quote, Money, in truth, is one of the most unsatisfying of possessions. It takes away some cares, no doubt, but it brings with it quite as many cares as it takes away. There is trouble in the getting of it. There is anxiety in the keeping of it. There are temptations in the use of it. There is guilt in the abuse of it. There is sorrow in the losing of it. There is perplexity in the disposing of it. Two-thirds of all the strifes, quarrels, and lawsuits in the world arise from one simple cause, money. Nowhere in the Bible does God's Word condemn having money or possessions. If God graciously provides them, be thankful. Use them for His kingdom. Maybe God has blessed you that way so you can truly be a blessing to someone else. I mean, Abraham, David, Solomon, they were loaded, and they were godly men, no doubt about it. What God does condemn, however, is a self-indulgent desire for money which rises out of an absence of contentment in Him and what He has provided for you. So let me ask you today, are you content with food and covering do you believe that godliness accompanied by contentment is truly great gain? Are you longing more for earthly riches or for heavenly ones? All you got to do is just look at what you start daydreaming about. What do you think about when you're on your bed at night and you can't sleep? Do you think about that new, you fill in the blank, that new house, that new car, that new situation in life that you want to happen for you? Or do you sit around at night and daydream about heaven. I can't wait to be with Jesus. I can't wait to really experience great gain. And it can start today by me changing my perspective and being thankful and realize that the food and the clothing that I have is enough and everything I have is a gift given to me. It's godliness accompanied with contentment that is great gain. Let's move on to number four, our fourth truth that will help us experience great gain. Number four, avoid the dangers of longing for more money. Avoid the dangers of longing for more money. Verse 9 and 10, But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money 
is a root of all sorts of evil, and some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. You know what we see here? We really see seven dangers that longing for money will produce in your life. Number one, it will be more likely that you will fall into temptation. There in verse 9 it says, but those who want to get rich fall into temptation. It's the idea that money satisfies, that money pacifies, that, 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 that we think that the more money we have, it eases our pain. And so we're tempted to look at money as our Savior instead of the Lord Jesus Christ. This past year, I was counseling with somebody who was suffering from depression. And I was trying to work with this individual about coming to Christ. Your contentment's got to be in Jesus, not in your circumstances. I'm sorry for what's happening. It is difficult, but you've got to realize that the only way out is Jesus. And this person said, hey, I know that, but sometimes I find great joy when I go online and buy a new gadget. And I said, so tell me a little bit more about that. And he said, well, there's just times in life where I know it's about Jesus, but boy, when I go online and buy something new, at least I know I'll be guaranteed happiness for about an hour. And it's worth me buying that so I can at least be happy for about an hour. You know what I told this individual? That's an insult to the Lord Jesus Christ. That somehow as a professing believer, you need one hour of blank to find satisfaction when you're not finding it in what God tells you to find it in, which is godliness with contentment to try to find true satisfaction in some object or some experience for one hour is so cheap. Find it in Christ. Find it in Him. Come to Him. Don't fall into the temptation if it's something outside of Him. It is Him where you find contentment. The second danger is this. Number two, getting caught in a snare. It's like an animal getting caught in some trap. You want more. you got to have more. You could easily get caught into debt. Some of us are in, maybe into credit card debt, up to your eyeballs. Maybe your mortgage payment is upside down. Maybe you can't afford what's going on because you're not content spending within your means. And so we spend above our means to find contentment, and before we know it, we're now in a snare. You are in a pickle. We all know what that's like. We've got to be careful. Number three, having, a foolish, having foolish and harmful desires. Money gives you options. Sometimes those options lead you to do foolish things and to harm yourself or others. Look at the people who win the lottery. Look at the celebrities that have $25 million contract, and two years later they've shot their girlfriend and themselves, and they're dead. It's not money. Money doesn't buy you contentment. It, it, it could lead to foolish and harmful desires. How about this? Number four, being plunged into ruin and destruction. Wholehearted pursuit of material wealth ultimately ruins one's spiritual life. To plunge means to sink, to submerge, to drag to the bottom. The pursuit of riches ultimately drowns men in a sea of greediness. The word ruin is often used to speak of the body, though it can refer to more than that. Destruction usually refers to the eternal ruin of the soul. These three terms together paint a picture of total devastation for both body and soul. Number five, becoming the root of all sorts of evil. You see it there in verse 10. It's not money that's the root. It's the love of money. So this desire to have more money, the love of money, can become, if it's overcoming, overtaking you, the root of all sorts of evil. The Scripture records that there are many, many tragic examples of those who were destroyed by the love of money. How about Achan, Joshua chapter 7? He went out and took some treasure that was forbidden, and he buried it in his tent. And what did it cost him? His life and his wife's life and his children's life. How about Ahab, who wanted Naboth's vineyard in 1 Kings 21, and Jezebel, his wicked wife, taught him how to get it, and it cost him his life. Later, it was prophesied he would die, and it was a gruesome death. How about Gehazi? 2 Kings chapter 5 received the payment from Naaman the leper, and then he himself was struck with leprosy because he wasn't supposed to love money that he loved more than following God's way. How about Judas, who betrayed our Lord for what? 30 pieces of silver, sold his soul to the devil. Later, he hanged himself. How about this, number six, causing you to wander 
from the faith. The love of money can cause you to wonder all the way away from the faith. Demas, the fair-weather disciple who loved this present world and apparently abandoned the faith. It happens all the time. People start pursuing money, and then you see their true colors. They choose wealth over the riches of heaven. How about this? Number seven, piercing yourself with many griefs. Look how it ends there in verse 11, the people who are, or verse 10, the people who are doing this pierced themselves with many griefs. How ironic is that? The people who are looking for happiness and comfort and contentment in their money are actually not finding it there. Not only are they not finding it there, but they're piercing themselves with many griefs. People who love money search for pleasure, but skewer their own souls. They seek comfort and riches, but they stab themselves with heartache and pain. People who are given over to the love of money pursue safety and their wealth, but they puncture their own hearts with misery and agony. No amount of money will make up for a lack of contentment. John D. Rockefeller once said, I have made many millions, but they have brought me no happiness. Cornelius Vanderbilt added, The care of millions is too great a load. There is no pleasure in it. Millionaire John Jacob Astor described himself as the most miserable man on earth. Despite his wealth, Henry Ford once remarked, I was happier doing a mechanic's work. Again, Rockefeller commented, The poorest man I know is the man who has nothing but money. The love of money and contentment are mutually exclusive. Jesus says you cannot serve two masters. If you're looking for your contentment and money, go look for it, but know that that road leads to hell. If you want to find true contentment, it's about a perspective. It's about great gain, far greater than anything money could ever buy. Peace of mind, a clear conscience, eternal riches, all the spiritual blessings of Christ in you through Christ. It's amazing. As a Roman proverb put it, money is like seawater. The more you drink, the thirstier you get. Well, we've certainly seen this morning that true contentment is not found in earthly riches, but in heavenly ones. And we do not gain happiness by looking at our circumstances, but by looking to Christ. It is godliness accompanied by contentment that provides great gain. At the end of this book, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment, Jeremiah Burroughs spends two chapters talking about how you can attain contentment. You're like, okay, Adam, I'm with you. Practically, what are some things I can do to really accomplish that? He gives 22 ways. I'm only going to give you five real quick as we close, all right? Five considerations to attain contentment. Number one, consider the abundance of God's mercy and the absence of eternal punishment. You know what he's saying? He's saying consider the gospel. You have an abundance of mercy. You deserve hell and eternal damnation forever, and yet he gives you heaven. Consider the gospel. That's the first step in leading you to contentment is you're grateful for what you have in Christ. The second thing he says is consider the encouragement to seek the things that are above where Christ is. In other words, he talks about how contentment is a labor. The labor is looking to Christ, fighting that temptation to look at other things other than Christ. It's following Colossians 3. Therefore, if you've been raised with Christ, keep seeking things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on the things that are on earth. Under this point, he talks about how seeking the things above. He talks about how this may have been the reason that Adam in the Garden of Eden didn't see his own nakedness. He suggests under this section that Adam walked so closely with God, he was so content in God and his relationship with God that he didn't even see his own nakedness. And he says he's certain of this, the reason why we are so troubled with our nakedness, with any wants that we have, is because we converse so little with God. A heavenly conversation is the way to contentment. Number three, Jeremiah Burroughs says this, 
consider all the helps in the world as little good unless we get a good temper within our hearts. Talks about how the fact that you can never make a ship steady by trying to bolster it up, prop it up on the outside. If you know anything about ships, the idea is there must be a balance within the ship so that it would be steady and not tilt one way or the other. So he's saying that until you get these principles, these truths of God's Word into your heart, you can't prop up your life on the outside and somehow reach contentment. You've got to have a good temper within your heart, a good perspective. Number four, consider the creatures that suffer for us. Why should we not be willing to suffer in order to be serviceable to God? Think about that day and time. They use horses, use mules, use oxen to plow the fields. These animals suffer for us to be serviceable to us. Why would we not be willing to be suffering, harnessed by God, doing what God wants us to do so that we can be of service to Him? Because my contentment isn't in the fact that I'm strapped up with what's going on in my life right now and all the responsibilities. The contentment comes in, I'm doing this for the Lord. I'm doing this to be serviceable to Him. I'm doing this to be an example of His grace and His power within me, to find contentment even in this suffering, even in this trial. How about this? Number five, consider that we have but a little time in this world. He writes, if you are godly, you will never suffer except in this world. Shut your eyes and soon another life is come. As that martyr said to his fellow martyr, do not shut your eyes, he said, and the next time they are open, you shall be in another world. We need a little reminder that we are like the dew on the grass, like the vapor. We're here today, gone tomorrow. Will 2013 be the year where you learn the art of Christian contentment? Will you be swept away by the love of money, or will something else grab your attention and your affection, and you chase it until you grab it, only to realize that it's hopeless, that it doesn't lead to a completed, satisfied perspective of what God can provide for you? Will you believe and live the truth that godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied with contentment? May God help us, I pray. Father, we're grateful for this message. We're thankful for your word, God. I know this seems a little convicting for us all, but Lord, the point isn't that we would leave here feeling bad. The point is we're to leave here feeling good. You've given us great gain. You've given each one of us the ability by pursuing godliness and being content with just whatever it is you choose to allow us to have, that in those things we have great gain. So, God, I pray that you would help us not to leave here today discouraged, but rather leave encouraged that contentment is just a step away. It's a step away from us being willing to sacrifice all this world has to offer and turn to the Lord Jesus Christ and realize that contentment is within our grasp because it's contained in the gospel and to realize that we can be content by pursuing godliness and in pursuing godliness, you would accompany that with the contentment that we long for. So God, give us fresh and a new perspective today. Give us great joy. Help us to experience great gain this year, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.